DEFCOM podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your hosts, Lars Janssen and Nico Baleta. Welcome to a new episode of our DEFCOM podcast series, bringing you the DEFCOM experience year-round. This time, I'm here with Nico Baletta, one uh, member from our DEFCOM team as my co-host. And we're both very happy to have here with us today, Gareth Coker, legendary video games composer known for the Ori games and many more. Hi, Gareth. Hi, Nico. Thank you for joining us today. So it's uh, kind of the, the first time that we have like two hosts because uh, our, our guest today is so impressive that we need to uh, <laughs> have two people to manage it. So uh, like I said, we're super excited. Gareth, yeah, to- starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> I think Nico listened to all the uh, soundtracks you made like in the last couple of days, so he's, oh, wow. he's well prepared <laughs> and has a lot of detailed questions. I'm trying my best. <laughs> so, Gareth, to get started, why don't you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, give us a quick overview of the key projects you work on in your career. Uh, most listeners are probably going to be familiar with you, but uh, a quick rundown, I think, would be helpful uh, to get started. So yeah, um, Ori and the Blind Forest was probably my breakthrough gig. Um, I'd had I'd done a couple of small projects before before that, um, but yeah, in 2012, Thomas Mahler, the director, it might have been a year earlier, maybe 2011, um, he found me on a website called moddb.com, and he liked one of the tracks I had up on there. I think it was a track that I did when I was a student. It was from a student film. Anyway, he liked he liked my music and he said, uh, if you do the prototype for Ori and we have uh, and we have uh, any publisher interest, um, then you can do you can score the game. So I did the prototype for free because obviously when you're doing the prototype, there's not much money. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Microsoft ended up giving us the uh, giving us a good deal to make to make Ori and the Blind Forest. And then. From Ori and the Blind Forest, um, a lot of other projects were came out of that. Obviously, Ori and the Will of the Wisps, because Blind Forest was successful and inspired a sequel. Um, <clears throat> but I also got to work with Microsoft on several Minecraft expansions. Um, I believe now it is either six or seven expansions in total, five of which have albums on Spotify or YouTube or wherever. Um, the Probably the coolest body of work I did for them was the mythology expansions. They did very specific themed expansions based on ancient mythology. So we have Greek mythology, Chinese mythology, Norse mythology, and Egyptian mythology. Um, and, and they were great fun because it was like produce an album of music in a very specific style and on a pretty tight deadline. Um, so... Uh, that was uh, th- those are really good fun, and they all have live music in them. Um, so tight deadlines the are what you call fun, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it it it's fun because with Minecraft, you know what the game is like. It really just the music needs to exist in the background and yeah. take the player to that place. It's it doesn't have a narrative, so a lot of difficult decisions are removed. Uh, so it's really just produce an album of music, and that when you reduce the amount of choice you have. Uh, the it, it makes it a little bit easier to write. Um, the other thing I'm probably most known for is uh, is Ark Survival Evolved, which even five years after release still has a massive player base. Um, I think it's still in the top 10 games on Steam. Um, and funnily enough, that, that game also came out originally from moddb.com i one of the smaller games that i started on um called primal carnage 
that was a game that um, I was working on with people from ModDB. And then one of the team uh, was making... Actually, some of the team was making animations for Ark Survival Evolved. And then the Ark guys were like, do you guys know any composers? And then they were like, yeah, we know Gareth. And then my audition for Ark was actually what ended up being the main theme. So literally the first piece I wrote ended up being the main theme for the game. <laughs> uh, Arcs now had uh, a full soundtrack and three expansions, four expansion soundtracks. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, there's another one coming. Um, and uh, yeah, that that game has also spawned some other projects too. Um, so um, it's it's kind of funny, like 10, 10 years ago, I had no profile whatsoever in the game industry. And really just from one website, lit all of my projects were were born so i guess i should make a donation to that site or something. <laughs> um but yeah that's that's kind of a, a quick a quick overview of like some of the projects i've done so uh th- thank you i mean it's it's pretty uh you know impressive stuff that obviously you've worked on and uh i think most of the people uh that uh, i know have played one of the ori games uh, at least and are probably very yep. familiar with your with your music so yep. uh let me um, ask you about the development process and, and the work of a composer um, during development. So at what point did you come in or do you usually come in, uh, in in that process? Do you pretty much start from the moment uh, they have the first thoughts about the game or at what point do they bring you on board so you can actually make a difference in terms of the um, uh, audio experience in the game? It greatly depends on the project, but I think... In the case of narrative games like Ori um, or Darksiders Genesis, which is another one I worked on, um, the earlier, the better. Because the more you understand what the player is going to experience from the beginning to the end, um, the better you can construct a score that is cohesive. Um, I don't know why I'm doing hand movements, but I always do hand movements when I speak. Um, <laughs> well, so this, so, is a, this is a you know yeah. <laughs> uh, immersive podcast experience. People, and I heard that people sometimes feel you know if people okay, are passionate okay. about it. So I don't I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think um, for a long time in the the game industry, and I know this because I've been told this by veteran composers, is that. Um, the composer, we got a long list of like the music that is required for a game. And it's just like a list of levels or a list of locations. And it's just like produce the music. And it, that's okay. Right. Like that, that, that's like the baseline, but just producing the environment music and the combat music in abstract is not enough. You have to have a basic understanding and ideally an advanced understanding of how the music moves from one piece of music to another. Okay, you have environment music and you have combat music, but how do you get into combat music? And then how do you get out of combat music? Like, And these things might sound super detailed, but actually they are so incredibly important to the player experience. If you if you rewind back to like, you know, t- 10 to 15 years ago when when you have like the, the old Final Fantasy 7 games, oh, yeah. uh, sorry, Final well, Fantasy games, like Final Fantasy 7 one of my favorites of all yeah. time, you know. But but like even though they even though the production quality is, you know, obviously they didn't really have live orchestra, but the thing is a lot of the transitions in the game work like when you go into combat, they have the visual they have the visual to justify changing the music. One of the things that I see in um, in some games, for example, is is in uh, open world games when you know maybe you're sneaking around and then all of a sudden you make a mistake and the combat music is like aha you made a mistake and it's like and then you're in full combat music mode. 
But like, what if you recover from that mistake really quickly? So, so let's say someone sees you, then the combat music kicks in, but then you take out the person that just saw you, and that takes place in five seconds. Did you really need a musical stinger for that moment, or did you need need to hear combat music? Probably not. Like, what should probably should be happening is we should hear the sound of the person reacting to having seen you, and then maybe you have time to react yourself. And then you don't need a music change. There's, I sometimes think that there's a tendency to overthink musical solutions,、um, and also think that music can solve every single problem with a game, when actually sometimes the sound effects can do the same thing、mm-hmm. as well.、Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for me, to get back to your question, like the earlier I'm involved in a project, the better I can see and understand like exactly what a game might need and work with the audio director or the music supervisor to figure out exactly what the game needs. I think quite a lot of times the music supervisor and audio dictator,、uh, audio,、uh, audio directors are dictating to the composer the music system that they have to write in, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you have a composer that's passionate about playing games, like I am, you should probably utilize their ability to play games and their own understanding of games to maybe give you an alternate look of what the game might need.、Um, my impression, having worked on every single kind of project, now I've worked on the smallest indies to the very biggest AAA games, which I can't announce yet, but I am working on one right now, and so I have an understanding of like all of the kinds. Of different structures that there are,、um, and the best ones always turn out to be whether the composer was brought in relatively early, had a chance to play the game, got a full understanding of the general flow of the game,、um, and that results in a score that can be better integrated into the final product. Yeah, that that, that definitely makes sense、um, from from my point of view. Was there a main difference between、um, the or a major difference, I should say, between the first Ori and the Blind Forest and Ori and the Will of the Wisps in terms of when you were brought on board and did you know did the team know that、uh, you know you're working on the first game, you delivered you know outstanding、uh, outstanding experience? Did they say okay, now we got to get this guy on board earlier than than before him? I mean, I was on I was on Ori One from from day one. Okay, because, well, then, then I guess there was no because because possible, yeah. yeah because because I did the prototype like I was、yeah. already kind of part of the core team.、Yeah. So,、um, but I mean, here's the thing. Like, and this is probably if there are any like audio supervisors listening, it's like, well, how can I afford to keep a composer around for like two to three years? And it's like, well, that's that's not really what I'm saying. Is what I'm really saying is. Have the composer be around the project so they understand like exactly what's going on instead of like dumping a huge amount of information on them with like six to nine months to go. You, if you have them around from the beginning, like maybe they won't write that much music, but at least they'll start thinking about what the the game needs. So, so when it does come time. To crunch and like write all of the music, the composer knows exactly what they're going to do. All of the music happens at the happens like you know in the in the the closing stages of development anyway because a, a, you you're waiting for a lot of the decisions to be made in gameplay and in art.、Um, I often feel like. It's,、uh, f- for example, on a, on a project recently, I did. It was like, yeah, let's make music for the final boss, and I'm like, what does the final boss look like? Can I play the final boss? Uh, no, we don't have it yet. But here's some concept art, and I'm like, well, that's great. Like the concept art is, it helps me what it looks like, but I don't know what it will feel like 
to fight this boss. I can make a guess because I've played a lot of video games mm -hmm. and that's kind of what they asked me to do. But it's like, it's never the same until you have the controller in your hands. Um, and and, and, and this, is a, this is another thing, by the way, if you just send video to the composer, that's not enough. Like it is completely different when you're holding the controller in your hands. The feeling that a player has when they're being controlling the interaction as opposed to watching on Twitch or on YouTube another player mm -hmm. playing it. Yeah, you can enjoy it, but it's passive enjoyment, not active enjoyment. Uh, and it's the same when you are composing the music for a game. If you can actively take part in the gameplay, you're going to feel more connected when you write the write the music for it. Um, so, so when I'm working on, like in the first two years, I hardly wrote any music for Blind Forest and Will of the Wisp, but we did establish some basic parameters like in, in the music. We figured out a process to do cutscenes um, that we were going to do a lot of back and forth um, with the cutscenes. So the, the, the way the cutscenes work is they the animation and art team would make some animatics or storyboards. So timing very, very loose then I would do a pass on the music to get the right feel for the scene and to make music that isn't tied explicitly to what's on screen in terms of the animation. So I don't feel limited by hitting all of the emotional beats at a certain time frame. Then I write music that I feel flows well. Um, and then what happens is the animation team and the art team animate to my music to hit the peaks where they need it to hit. And we just keep going back and forth. And that's not a very common process. Usually what happens is the cutscenes come at the end and it's like, okay, write the music for this and you must follow the timing. And yeah, that's fine. Like we, we can figure it out, but it's, I think it's less than ideal. Um, especially for, uh, for game, especially for key cutscenes. You obviously you don't need to do it for every cutscene, but like, because in some games you're going to have hundreds of cutscenes. Yeah. Um, but if you if you do it for your key cutscenes and have like a more back and forth process, then it feels more like a collaboration. In terms of the gameplay, because I'm playing the game early, I get to know like how the game feels to play. And so I can understand things like speed and tempo. Like what's the speed of the game? I've always believed that every game has like a, a default speed, like a cruise control in a, in a car. Mm. There's the base. And yes, it goes up and it goes down, but everything kind of has a base speed. And I think Ori is definitely one of those games. When you get into the flow of Ori, it feels, it almost feels like kind of a ballet uh, it, or, or a dance. Um, I would say um, Cuphead is another one or Doom is another one. Mm. Like, but these games, they're all very different, but they all have their own kind of speed and feel. And the music usually reflects that. The music in Doom is usually of a certain tempo. Um, the music in Cuphead is usually of a certain tempo. And the music of Ori is usually of a certain tempo. So all of these things um, help me early on in the game to make some basic decisions. Um, then when the artwork comes in, that's when I decide what instruments to use. Um, and all of the, and, um, while the artwork is coming in, also I'm thinking about different character themes. And so between artwork, gameplay, character themes, and also, um, the, the cutscenes, um, I'm deciding all of this stuff in the first two years, maybe the first year, depending on how long the development is. And then when it comes time to like write a ton of music, I've already defined so many things 
that it makes a lot of decisions at the end much easier. I'll take the ending of Will of the Wisps. I'm obviously not going to spoil it, but like I saw the ending of Will of the Wisps and I'm like, well, I don't have to really write anything new because all of the content that I need in the ending, obviously I need to tailor it towards the scene, but like all of the content, all of the musical ideas exist in the five hours of music I've already written for the game. <laughs> so like you don't, I, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Then, and, then, and the cool thing about that is, is then you can focus on like bringing out the emotions in the scene and not worrying about having, oh, what, what melody do I have to write now? Because I made that decision two years ago. Um, what um, what instruments am I going to use? Oh, I made that decision like a year ago. So a lot of decisions are made and then you can actually focus on doing what's best for the scene instead of just trying to write a piece of music. Um, my overall point is, and this is you know an important part of the developer thing, is that when you limit the amount of time a composer has to think about solutions, they're going to go for what they know works rather than experiment in what might work. So, because I think all composers can deliver a satisfactory score that works. Anyone who's working at a reasonably high level will always deliver a good score. But there's a difference between good and will it actually make a real difference to your game? Yeah, right. Um, uh, because there's there's tons of games with really wonderful sounding music, but does it really connect with the player? Not all the time, uh, and there's a reason for that. Um, it's it's usually because it hasn't been fully integrated into the player experience. Um, and yeah, that's that's why I think like it's important, especially in narrative games, to 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 get the the player on early, uh, earlier. It just it it there's no way it can hurt. You can only benefit. Um, so it might seem like it's more expensive to keep the composer around for that length of time, but you're not going to be employing them full time for like three to four years. It's not like it's it's not like uh, they're a, they're an employee employee. Um, but you can have them around so that they can grow with the game. Yeah, and experiencing the the results uh, that we see in, in Orient the Will of the Wisps. I mean, there you can tell the difference. You, you can tell there's a difference from not having the composer around for a long time. And you also mentioned something uh, repeatedly that I find interesting. You said like um, that playing the game as a composer, feeling the flow, is really yep. makes a difference. Uh, I mean, I'm curious. Do you think that um, you know other composers in the industry share that same sentiment toward playing? Playing the game, or are you some kind of an outlier a little bit, being very special about uh, being a, a gamer, like really into that? Um, or is that like, is everybody doing this anyways? So I think, um, I think there are, especially um, my generation of composers, we, we all grew up playing video games, so it's normal to us. Um, but that, that said, I, you know, there are plenty of composers who have tons of experience who have, who also play the games, but maybe, but I think, It's, it's a different time now just because my generation grew up on this, whereas video games 20 years ago is still a very, very new thing. Um, that said, it is absolutely 100% possible to deliver a great soundtrack if you as a composer do, do, don't play the game. I just want to emphasize that. I'm not like trashing composers who don't, who don't play games. That's not true at all because there are, there are plenty of examples. Yeah. Um, but, and here's the key. If you're a composer who doesn't play the game, 
oh my goodness, you had better be working with someone, an audio supervisor or a music director that understands how best to put your music in the game. Because ultimately, they are going to be the ones that are representing your music. And there are a lot of great audio directors and music supervisors who do have great relationships with composers. But if you're a composer and you don't play the game and you're just handing off your music to the game developer, all right, buy music. Well, how the hell are you going to know what's going to come out when the when the when the game is released like Absolutely. don't you yeah. don't you want to know like how the music is going to play surely you must or do you tr- and 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 if you if you don't you you are putting your trust in someone that potentially you don't know or doesn't know your music as well as you do um and then I, that to me is very risky like if you were doing a film there is absolutely no way you wouldn't watch the entire film without your music. So it's just ludicrous to me that like someone wouldn't, a composer wouldn't be interested in how the game's music is implemented and played back. O- the only exception is if you are working with a great audio team or music supervisor. But the thing is, that usually only happens on AAA games because they're the only companies that can actually afford to have a, bit, a great music yeah. supervisor or audio director. So honestly, this rules out probably like 90% at least of games being made. Like you're lucky if you have an audio director that's going to bother to place the music. Most of the time, they're just going to be like, all right, here's level one music. Let's just put it in level one, done. Like because they've got 6 million other things to worry about in terms of the audio programming. Um, so... On the smaller projects, you're you're especially if you're getting started, or if you're a small indie developer, like that you 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 you're not going to have an audio director or music supervisor. That's a luxury position, um, and your composer your your composer and you as an indie developer, you're going to be wanting to put your trust in each other to make sure that the music plays plays back correctly. So it's on you, the composer, to ask for the game, and it's on you, the developer, to give the composer all the tools he or she could possibly need. Um, I find, like, today, especially in the indie world, there's really no excuse for not being able to give a composer a build anymore. Just put it on Dropbox and let the composer download it. It's not like it, he or she needs all of the all of the assets or everything, but give them a playable build every day. It's almost always the first thing I ask for uh, on any project is like, if possible, obviously the security ramifications, but like, if possible, can I get a daily build? And they're like, oh, it'll be broken. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Just give me a debug menu and I'll figure it out. Like, or just give me the cheats or whatever. It's just so I can, I don't need to play the whole game every day, but I need to like get a feel for, for like different levels, even so I can see how it looks because concept art is almost never exactly what it looks like in the game. The concept art is designed to inspire the level artists to make something that looks roughly like the concept art. That's, that's, the, that's why it's called concept art. So asking composers to, uh compose something based on a piece of concept art that won't exactly look like that in the game is very alien it's a very alien idea to me um so 
Uh, I forgot what your question was because I'm getting car- <laughs> no, I'm getting car- I'm getting carried away. <laughs> no, but that's, uh, that's exactly why we're doing this because you're sharing so yep. many insights into how to work with composers. And one of yep. the things you you mentioned uh, I found very interesting that indie sometimes uh, uh, might be a very interesting um, yep. uh, you know target group actually for for you because yep. they are the ones that are able to share builds early on. They yep. they are the ones that usually don't have to worry too much about you know who sees that build and don't have to worry too much yep. about you know security risks and I don't know certain IP restrictions and all the legal stuff around it. So yeah. I think uh, what you're saying, you know, should resonate a lot with a lot of our indie community that also is probably going to listen to these these podcasts um, because they uh, are the ones that can deliver that. You know, and it's refreshing I to think- hear that there's composers that actually are willing to take on like the the little bit of ugly builds in the beginning where you have to do some some uh, grinding actually to get into them. Yeah. That, I mean, that, I think that's helpful for composers. I mean, it, really, is it is it so much to you, ask? Like, uh, like, sorry, go on. Oh, are you going to say something? I think uh, no. Do you think that? Um, um, yeah. Um, do you do you think that sometimes maybe just indie developers in particular just don't know any better? You know, in terms of. Uh, bringing in uh, composers earlier simply because they have like a wrong picture of what it might cost them and they're always looking at their budget and um, I mean this is like I, I've heard that in so many uh, presentations and conversations where um, you got the feeling that um, indies like the uh, or at least you know new studios new teams like the experience of what they can actually afford and at some point you decide okay where do i where do i put my focus on and most of them i think um make the mistake in my opinion um yeah to 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 not put any focus on the music even though i don't know this is like when you look at the great game soundtrack and and this is what always like you said you know this is like you can when the soundtrack actually pushes um the emotions and the feelings the game transports to to its maximum and um but that's sometimes the feeling that i get that that people just don't know better and are afraid a bit to ask me i think uh yeah so so yeah when it comes to that i think i think you're partly right like it's it's a lot it's a lot about that they don't know better but also um they they may have you know, looked online or, you know, read a tutorial or been taught in school that like, oh yeah, music's post-production. Most people think that music is post-production. And in film and TV, that's mostly true because, but film and TV, you're dealing with a a much more established and streamlined uh, production process uh, that is very, very fixed for the most part. There are a few exceptions where the composer does music before the film is shot, but that is not the rule that is the exception. Games are so much more fluid in development. Just if you compare one aspect of games to film, all right, once you've done a film, once you have shot the film, unless you have a ton of money, that's it. Like what you got on camera, that's it. You're not, you're not going back to change it um, unless you're a massive, massive project with tons of money. But in games, you you can tweak you can tweak the shots right up until day zero. Uh, like you know, we, we we've all seen day one patches now. Um, so you you can tweak things late because you can put the camera wherever you want, um, and that means right from the beginning you can have a very very fluid process in, in game development, which means that everyone can be involved from the beginning. 
Um, now that doesn't mean you have to score the whole game from the beginning, but like I said, that cutscene that we did, like right at the beginning, and it's actually one of the most important cutscenes in or in the Blind Forest. It's at the end of the first chase scene, and you meet the antagonist for the first time. Like that's the that's pretty damn important. And like I my first version of that. There was no graphics. It was just silhouettes. It was just black and white and geometry. But like, it told me everything I needed to know to write the music for the scene. And what that defined was like exactly how dramatic we were going to go for our big mo- for our big moments in the game. It was like, oh, okay, we're going pretty much full Disney. And though, so we we defined what our cutscenes were, um, and that and that. And that helped us down the line because um, because we'd, we'd made those decisions. And I think indie developers probably think that, oh, we just add the music in at the end. It's not true because game development is so fluid and so different. And, you know, if you're worried about being able to, uh, you know, afford a composer being around for that time, it's there's so many ways that you can structure a deal to make a composer be a part of a project because a lot of people just think it's the upfront payment but there's a lot of back end especially on indie projects that can be very lucrative for everyone i mean you can, for example you can give the composer the soundtrack royalties you can give the composer a bonus based on how well the game has sold you can give the composer a revenue share because if the chances are you're indie you probably control all of your revenue anyway unless you have a publisher then it's a little bit different but if you have a publisher, you probably have more money to pay the composer. So, um, like, there's, there's, just, all I'm saying is that there's, there's options that are not as obvious that you can use to have your composer be around longer, but also just don't expect them to work full time on your project unless you can afford to pay them sure. a full time salary. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, other than that, like you have all of the tools possible to be able to get to get your composer what they need now. I think 10, 15 years ago, this would have been much harder. Um, but, you know, we have Dropbox and Google Docs um, and and all of these like and Skype and Zoom and, and, and all of these other different collaborative tools online. Um, and Moon Studios has been working like this for a long time. And we've kind of gotten used to used to that process now and, and somewhat streamlined it. But we are not using special tools for it. We're using tools that are publicly available and honestly, most of them are free. Um, so mm-hmm. like it's, it's actually a very efficient workflow. Um, and so indie developers can do this too and they can get lots of people involved very, very easily. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a, having great music in your game is actually a very easy way to elevate your game if it's it's not, if you, yes you can just slap music on at the end and maybe it's okay um but you're especially if your game is is narrative then you're always just going to get a better result and there's there's no um I, I can't think. I can't think of an exception. To, I can't think of an exception to that rule. Um, and it's funny. Uh, e- we mentioned uh, AAA games, like not being able to give out builds. But even that's coming to an end because we are entering the age of streaming, being able to stream games. Uh, most game companies are either going to use XCloud or or Stadia at some point, and so they don't have to worry anymore about like. A, a build being like on my hard drive because I'll be able to stream a latest build from their from their state from their Stadia development or um, or XCloud or whatever. So 
that's a that's another thing I expect to see. I hope some AAA developers are listening because it's like, well, get your composer the game and give it to them over the cloud because that technology exists now, um, which and it didn't even exist like two years ago. So really, in my opinion, there's just no excuse for anyone <laughs> not being able to give their contractors, like composers or sound designers, a way to play the game. I think that age should be over. It's interesting you mentioned Stadia because I can say coming from like a an environment where we have a lot of AAA development going on in multiple studios, Stadia, for example, um, is yeah. uh, really one of the options that we looked into yeah. and we're actively using right now to provide you know uh, contractors with access to the actual yep. builds and uh it's, it's it's working well and i think more and more are actually going to uh, yep. you know uh, jump that that bandwagon pretty much and yep. uh, and get people on board uh, but i'm glad that you actually mentioned something else on dropbox for for a moment i was worried that you're sponsored by dropbox or something and we gotta nope. <laughs> we gotta feature this uh <laughs> this episode somehow no but yeah you're really right i mean there's so many tools out there um <laughs> so there really shouldn't be any excuse to um not give people access to, um, you know, to the game and development. So, so I was um, wondering um, regarding the the overall creative process. I mean, we touched a little bit on that, but there's so many games that we all um, hold near and dear that we that we cherished in the in the past and even and now where they create those magic moments uh, where uh, gameplay and music and everything just comes together and it's like this this one moment that you memorize for the rest of your life. Um, how do you make that happen? <laughs> man if i if i could if i could turn that into a book i would write the book and uh and it would probably go to number one on amazon and i could retire um but uh it just quote just quote yeah. me for the idea you know if, if you ever do it, it just <laughs> right um so i think and this comes back to getting involved early when when you're involved early you can work this is the thing uh, Moon Studios philosophy is is you know g giving the especially the creative leads like a big big stake in in the game like we get to you know we really get to drive some decisions I'm not just deciding music like if I have an opinion on the pacing or like what needs to be a big moment in the game it will be heard because music will greatly affect that and I think especially in big companies th th there's not much there's not much stakeholding being given to key creatives on the team not as much as they should and so certainly if you can it's funny we have there's this there's this thing now you know games are always trying to be like film well if you're actually trying to be like film maybe you should actually look at how films are being made and how collaborative the key people are like Hans Zimmer Christopher Nolan John Williams Steven Spielberg uh James uh, James Horner, who's sadly not with us anymore, uh, James Cameron. Like, you can just go on and on and on and find the great relationships. And, you know, I'm sure those people had lots of arguments. I, I find it hard to believe that John Williams and Steven Spielberg have not had an argument at some point. They have a great relationship, but, like, you know, the, the, these things happen. And it's just, like, there's a reason why those collaborations are great. It's because they're so deeply invested in the process. And, in really in in really big productions the, the productions are so big and there's so many stakeholders and people involved that also of people that want to give their opinion that actually like the creative the creative people who are doing the actual work and doing the actual creating uh their voice can actually get lost now on a smaller project even a mid-core project i um you know ori ori 2 had 70 people working on it ori 1 much smaller team but like 
there there's there's enough uh there's there's not too many people and there's there's enough of a chance to have your your voice be heard and that is the first step to finding out like what these moments are you need to be able to identify and everyone needs to agree on like what are these moments in the story that we really need to like make the player like remember that moment and i you know i think one of the first things that the team targeted for will of the wisps for example was combat um and that i i have to be honest i i was a little concerned going in because the first ori game is really all about platforming and movement and then when we talked about the, the what we were going to do for the second game there was the, the you know it was like okay we're going to improve the combat because that was a huge like bit of feedback that we got from the first game that the combat was okay but nothing never really better than okay um and so we were like okay well we're gonna still try and keep the great platforming and have the combat and i'm like oh my goodness this could like completely change the flow of the game if we have too much combat um and then i remember through testing um because we all test the game at moon studios it's actually pretty much required um there's like testing weekends where we just play play the latest build um and i, I remember the feedback that, that came out. I, I i i i'm pretty sure i'm not breaking any uh non-disclosure here this is uh this is pretty open but i like remember totally up to you you know we're not <laughs> yeah <laughs> nah i think it's uh yeah i think i think it's fine like i just remember like the early builds of the game i was like oh my god there's just so much combat and it's really really good but there was no chance to appreciate it so it's like okay we've had that moment of combat we don't need combat now um i, I, I can give i can actually give one very very specific example um so in a part of the game it's called the ancient wellspring you're inside and you enter this like mini wheel it's it's a room that is like a wheel that rotates and you enter the room and there's two doors and they shut immediately uh, and then you have to fight some monsters that appear from like the the background. Great, that's that's awesome. Then once you finish, the doors open, and then you have to pull a lever that rotates that same wheel 180 degrees, and then you go back through the wheel. Now, when you go back into the room, you have to fight monsters again, and it's like we don't need that, like because we've already had the experience of fighting in this room, and it, it didn't add anything, and it just delays you from getting to the next place. You don't want to. You don't want to stay in the same place again, fighting more monsters. There's going to be plenty more monsters elsewhere in the game. And I remember I was, and and this is the kind of thing I was like, this is why this studio is cool because I I was just like, can we get rid of the monsters the second time we go through that wheel? It's just completely unnecessary. And the the, the gameplay designer was like. I don't see why it's a big deal, but if you feel that strongly about it, sure, let's try it. And then it gets put into the game because it's not very difficult to make the change. Delete monster, not hard. Um, <laughs> like, um, uh, and and I was like, man, it just improves the flow and keeps things going forward. I that's that's an example of a roadblock, like that we were just trying to remove because we always wanted to keep the player being p pushed forward and not feel like they were getting stuck. But that suggestion came from the composer and it's like i i if on other titles there's absolutely no way i would be able to like be even given the chance to give that kind of feedback and i think that's a shame so is moon uh, studios very special in that regard i mean you work on other projects as well i mean you mentioned arc and arc darksiders genesis and so on so is moon studios really really something special i would say moon studios is the flattest organization i've worked for by far mm -hmm. um i know valve works in a similar way but they've they've been pretty open about how they're a flat organization but i've not experienced working at valve 
myself, um, not as an employee. Um, I did work on Dota 2 briefly uh, this year. Uh, but uh, yeah, Moon is is flat. Like everyone can give feedback on everyone's work. And the way that doesn't get convoluted and crazy is we basically triage it. If someone agrees with your feedback, then it will get elevated and someone will agree. It's basically just like plus one on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, I agree with that. And then it just gets elevated up the priority. And if lots of people agree, well, sorry, dude, you're going to have to change it. Um, like if, if only one person doesn't like a thing in the music, then I'll look at it and be like, okay, that's probably personal taste. But if 10 people don't like something in the music and it's all kind of similar, then yeah, I should probably look at it um, to, to, um, to, you know, to see if I can make something better. And that like triage system um, and elevation of priority is, is something that was very, very useful, especially towards the end of production. Um, and yeah, so to, to get back to your moment uh, question, <laughs> cause I, I don't want to get off on tangents too much. Um, but like, that example that I gave is an example of pacing. And to create moments in games, you need pacing. If everything is epic, then nothing is epic. It, that's And if everything is quiet, then actually everything is loud. To make these moments, you need to have contrast in the gameplay. You need to have ebbs and flows. And you need to make sure things go smoothly from start to finish. It's one thing to have... Like, okay, we've made this epic scene and we've got this epic bit of gameplay, but how does it feel in the moments around it? Like, what do you have leading up to it and what do you have coming out of it? Um, and, you know, the, I think the most famous example from from the Ori games is the chase scene, uh, the first chase scene in Blind Forest where you're going up the tree and the water is chasing you. Now, the reason why that works it's not just because of that chasing. So many people are like, oh, the chase scene feels so good. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's a little bit more in depth than that. So the reason why it's cool to me is because you actually enter the tree and there's some basic like environmental platforming and you're just constantly going up. So you're already like, your brain is already wired for like the vertical platforming. And the music that plays in the early parts of the Ginzo tree, when it isn't the actual chase sequence, is foreshadowing what is coming. It's it's like movement one of the symphony. And then as you further go up further, the music changes a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and then you get to the actual chase sequence. Um, so if we say that the intensity level when you enter the Ginzo tree for the first time is like three, then as you progress up, it gets to like five, then it gets to seven. And then you're, okay, it's chase sequence time. Then you're at like nine and 10. And then you're on like the third movement of the symphony. And then you have the chase sequence. And then you finish the chase sequence. And then it's like, oh, I'm finished. And it's like, okay, it's the ending. But not yet, because then there's another cutscene where we introduce the antagonist for the first time because Kuro is waiting for you on top of, on top of the Ginzo tree. And that's like another, oh my goodness moment. So you have like, you have the exhilaration of finishing the chase sequence for the first time. Then you have the relaxing moment of like, oh, I finished the chase sequence. Then you have the, oh my God moment of, oh, it's it's the antagonist for the first time. And then after that cutscene, you wake up in the swamp, which before you entered the Ginzo tree, the water would poison you or damage you. 
But now you see that same water and it's completely clean and the music is much more relaxing than it was the last time you're in the swamp. The first time you're in the swamp, the music is kind of dark and menacing and slow because it's difficult to move through the swamp. Now it's relaxing and happy because this is the first time Ori, as the player, did something that affects not only himself, but also the game. He actually made a difference in the world. And that is being reflected in the visuals. It's being reflected in the music. And actually, in that moment, it is also reflected in the gameplay because it's the first time you can actually swim safely. And swimming in Ori is really fun and it's really smooth and it's quite relaxing. So in the space of, let's say that the Ginzo tree, the entire level takes probably most players uh, 20 to 30 minutes to finish, depending on your ability. Um, but in 20 to 30 minutes, you're experiencing all intensity levels. And that Ginzo tree moment, everyone talks about the chase, but the chase is only effective because of all of the decisions and all of the flow leading up to it. Um, and that took a long time. But I remember when we finished that for the first time, that was the first time I knew I was working on a great game. Cool. Because I was like, even just the sequence alone, I've never experienced anything like anything like this. I remember having feelings like this in other games, like where I was that exhilarated and excited. But I was like, this is why we make games. So like, and that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to make more moments like that. And uh, when when we had that first moment, it was like, okay, here's the blueprint. We just need to create a few more like these. We don't need to make the whole game like this. We just need to find the other spots. And fortunately, we had other chase sequences planned anyway. But we had the blueprint for the second game. I'm not going to go into as much detail, but we have the um, we have the boss fights. And the first one we did was the spider boss. And we've never done boss fights in Ori before. Like the chase sequences, we kind of knew how to do, but we'd never done, but we, because of the emphasis on combat, we were like, okay, we need to make these combat scenes like really, really incredible because we've, we've talked publicly about how awesome our combat is and how great our boss fights are going to be. Well, how are we going to do that? <laughs> uh, we better, better figure that out now. Um, so. All the boss fights have like an intro sequence that is very cinematic and that transitions seamlessly into gameplay. And um, I remember doing the boss fight music and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Does it need to be epic or does it need to be menacing? And I was just like, you know what? This is pretty epic. It's a giant spider and it's already like doing all kinds of attacks and all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. And I was, so I was like, I was like, let's go over the top and see how it feels. And everyone loved it. And I'm like, okay, we're going, we're going big for the boss fights. And the reason why going big for the boss fights works is because we never, ever go big in any other combat moments in the game. Mo Even in the compulsory, smaller, like mini boss combat sections of the game, the music doesn't really get big. It gets bigger, but the intensity level is five or six at, at most, which leaves you room to have high intensity music for the boss fights. Um, if we'd had high intensity music all the way through um, for, for all combat situations in Ori, it just wouldn't have worked. Um, the, the boss fight music wouldn't stand out as much as it does. Now what happens is the boss fight music is a moment in the game because there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else as big as the boss fight music. Um, and then, yeah, once we had that idea of like, okay, going really, really big, um, then we just had to make it work with the gameplay. And the only other thing that was really big with the boss fights is we wanted to tell a story within the boss fight. 
And the way we were able to do that is because the boss fight music, sorry, the boss fight design uh, allowed the music to follow the design. So the spider has the intro, then phase one combat, and then phase two is like a ch mini chase scene, which allows us to move the player to another arena uh, where they can continue fighting the boss. So you have phase one combat, phase two chase music, phase three second combat. And that allows me to structure the music and change the music, not just because if it was just epic all the time, people would be happy, but it's like the, people want the music to change during a long fight sequence. So the initial phase one music is kind of typical, terrifying, oh my God, it's a spider because Ori's never experienced this before. So it's like, what would Ori feel in this moment? He'd be like, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? Then the chase scene, it's like, okay, he's starting to win the battle. So we can start to shift it to something more positive. And then in the final, in the final arena, the music shifts to actually the optimistic music that played in the original uh, blind, the, the, the tree chase sequence. It's, it's a different version of that same theme. So it reminds the player that like, yeah, you can do it. You're winning the battle and it makes you feel more heroic. And that is a narrative decision. That's, that's not just like changing the music for the sake of changing the music. It's a very deliberate narrative decision. And I'm very happy that players picked up on it because I read all the comments on YouTube. I know I shouldn't read the comments, but I do. Um, and uh, <laughs> do, you, do you sometimes then, uh, you know, go to bed and whine about it? Or? Uh, no, actually, yeah. I mean, actually, actually, Ori, most of them are pretty good. I usually there are always some negative ones. And I there's always trolls, right? I mean, everywhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, but like most people picked up on the changing on the changing music uh, because it, because it even though they were struggling with the fight it made them feel like they should carry on because because I chose to put Ori's theme there um, and having that sense of narrative by the way I should say I'm not doing anything new here the reason why it works is because I had time to think about what was the best solution for the boss fight I feel like most boss fights I play in games it's just like epic music yeah. And it's like, okay, this is cool, but it stops being cool after two minutes. Yeah. Like, how are you going to change it and make it interesting? This, What I'm doing, this technique has been around for ages. Uh, the most prominent, I would say, is Shadow of the Colossus. Like, it's not the same music playing the whole time in Shadow of the Colossus when you fight one of the Colossi. Mm. The music changes as you progress through the combat. Because the combat takes forever. Like, you know, it's, it's not like these are not simple boss fights. And I was just like, why can't we do that? it's been this technique is nothing new and and i think uh especially in the current age there's all of this like music system stuff and we can do all of this crazy interactive music and we can change all the music and we do can do stuff with ai and in real time and uh recomposing the music based on audio and all of this based on audio stems and like all of this crazy stuff and i'm like do you do you, do you actually need all of that if you do then great but like, have you actually put thought into why you need all of this stuff? And that is the question. Like any developer who is listening, you have to ask, why do you need whatever music system you have in your game? Because sometimes you actually really only just need the most rudimentary basic playback. And other times, yes, you will need something incredibly granular and incredibly in-depth. But my feeling, having worked on all kinds of projects, is that the music system is in place before I arrive in many cases. And sometimes I'm just like, 
why why like why are you doing this like what is the reasoning have you actually thought about it have you actually played with this music system in mind do you need all of these different tracks and that's what i would say to every developer is it's okay to have music systems but talk with your composer about what might be the best music system for the game and that's that's the relationship i had with ori and the sound team on ori i had an amazing implementer on ori who could like make suggestions and we were just like let's not break what we did for the first game but like let's Let's just try and expand upon that. And really the only thing that is fundamentally different from the approach to music in Ori 2 as opposed to Ori 1 is the music changes in an even more granular way. Um, Ori's music I would describe as horizontal. So it just changes based on what the player is doing. That is not a new concept at all, but it's about the execution of that concept. Horizontal music has been around for decades, but what makes horizontal music work is where the music changes. And the only way you can make that work is if you have played the game over and over again and experimented with what different places can you change the music and does it work? As opposed to relying on an AI-driven or a computer or a real-time system that decides for you, especially in a narrative game, in a multiplayer shooter, it'd be completely different. But in a narrative game, why are you allowing the computer to dictate the narrative beats? I don't know. It's very strange to me. Every single music change in Ori 1 and 2 was decided by me. And it's what I thought was best. So it's reliant on my taste. And if that doesn't work for some people, well, at least, like, that that's fine. They cannot like that. But why leave it to the game's system to make the changes for you in a narrative game? I'll never... That's something I won't really understand. Like, you are much better off... If you have... If you have free-form and open-world gameplay, then you need to maybe rely on a system. But to make these moments within, like, for example, an open-world game, you need to have handcrafted things that were played, that were decided on by an actual developer, by an artist, by an animator, by the sound team, by the music team, because that is how you create those moments. You can't just, like paint the whole thing by numbers. You'll, what you will get is an effective score, brilliantly recorded if you have lots of money, but actually you'll end up with something that was so good all the time that the player won't actually remember any of it. And that is, the, that is honestly the worst thing that can happen <laughs> in a game that you've been playing for 100 hours. Imagine playing a game for 100 hours and then when you finish, you can't actually remember a single thing about it because it all felt the same. It's not good. Like, you want to feel... Even if it's bad, like at least like you want to feel something. Like take <laughs> take take a risk. I mean, we're seeing all of this discourse about Last of Us Two now, right? Yeah. Um, and that people are unhappy about the story or whatever. But they told the story they wanted to tell. Like that's you know that's it's on you if you don't like it. It's not on it's not on the developers. And it's and the thing is, we're in this also in this age where it's, apparently it's not okay to not like things. If you don't like it, that's fine. Um, like, but um, but. At least you're talking about it, which means they created a moment for you to talk about. And that, to me, is something that's very important. I would rather talk about something that didn't work, but at least they tried to make something, you know, different, um, rather than just, oh, that was a good game. Can you remember any of the moments in it? Uh, I I remember it was fun to play for 100 hours. That, that, that yeah. like, that's... <laughs> And, 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 you know, let's take um, one of the reasons why Fortnite is so popular is because its gameplay is able to make these moments happen organically. Like that is that is why Fortnite is so popular, because cool stuff happens that you cannot plan for. 
And that is like that is an example of how it works in in like a in a multiplayer game, um, and that's what these open world games are looking for. But when you're combining open world and narrative, you can't just like do a paint by numbers approach. You have to have like key emotional beats that are that are targeted to to make those moments special, and that just requires intense cross collaboration at all points. Um, and it's just it's hard. I mean, I remember we went we went back and forth on the ending of Will of the Wisps so much just to make sure that all of the different emotional beats land because i'm not going to spoil the ending but like it's a roller coaster um and the ending for me is actually not the final seven minutes of cutscenes. it actually starts before the final boss there's a very epic cutscene that starts before the final boss that music cue plays that transitions completely seamlessly into the boss fight um the boss fight has three four phases uh with music changes throughout and you can actually play all of the music from that first cutscene through the boss fight and then through the final seven minutes of cutscenes and it will all be completely seamless because that's how I constructed it. Had I been given a list of music cues saying like boss fight phase one, boss fight phase two, <laughs> not knowing yeah. not knowing how it would piece together. Yeah, it would have worked probably because I, you know, I would have an idea, but because I played that entire arc from start to finish, I knew exactly how it would go down. So if we were to do a concert of Ori, you'd be able to like play the, how many, how many minutes of music that, that is four minute cutscene, uh, seven minutes for the boss fight and seven minutes for the final cutscene. So that you, we'd be able to make an 18 minute piece of music that is completely continuous that shows the final parts of the game and i i'm gonna i'm just gonna say it i think that's pretty damn cool uh, <laughs> like uh, like um and, and and that was deliberate but i could not have done that if i hadn't been playing the game um you the and the only way a music supervisor would be able to do it is if they told the composer what keys to write in with the music because to get all of those transitions working perfectly all of the keys need to be related so that the ending moves into the new piece of music seamlessly. Um, that I can do because it's my job. I'm a musician. But like, if you're handing over your like random cues and the keys don't match because you don't know how one piece of music flows into another, it's just not going to feel as good to the player. Um, it'll still feel good because you have cutscene music and then, okay, epic music for the boss. So you'll have the basic emotional beats, but like, what really makes those emotional beats work is how music flows in and out of them. I could talk about this for days because I think it is deeply. Oh, I, I, I think am certain. <laughs> uh, I think it is. I think all of this stuff is deeply psychological as well. Like when you're playing a game, you get so into it, and you don't want anything to break that concentration. There is nothing worse than when immersion is broken in a game when um, you're like super into it. And like, so, so the goal was really like, how can we just keep the player from paying attention all the way to the end? And we definitely, if you get to the ending or you're not finishing, I've never seen anyone rage quit on the final boss fight. Um, not yet. Maybe it's happened, but like you're going to keep going because it's so invigorating. And that's, that's like a moment. You're going to remember that because you kept going until the end, but then you have the payoff of the cutscene as well. So like really the whole ending is a moment. The whole of Ori 2 really builds towards the ending. It's like, yeah, we have all of the other moments before that, but I would say it's like, it's like cooking a good Italian spaghetti. You need to, you need to like start it slow 
and have it cook for a long time and then the payoff is right at the end whereas ori one <laughs> ori one is like it's it's got all of the, it's it's got of like all of these different moments like throughout the game whereas ori two is more like a slow cook um uh approach like the game starts off and it's it's fairly you know it's it's uh, its intensity level is two but we we have like little ramps like during the during the game but it was all for me at least it was always about like nailing the ending especially knowing what the ending is that was always the goal um i'm I know that we succeed in the ending because I've seen all of the discourse about it online. It's not an ending that made everyone happy, um, but their people are discussing it. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to compare Ori to The Last of Us 2, but like The Last of Us 2 is getting people talking about it, both good and bad. Um, and Ori's, you know, some people are not happy with Ori 2's ending just because it wasn't, maybe wasn't what they expected, but, um, they, I think we did execute exactly what we wanted to do because we all thought about it so much and not didn't just try to do a paint by numbers ending. Yeah, Man, I'm sorry. Like, like that is seriously. It's just <laughs> like you've you've given me a platform because I, I know I'm speaking Pandora's to developers. Box, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you've given me a platform because I know I'm speaking to developers who. And I think developers who hear this stuff, I think they care about this stuff a lot because I think every developer wants to have that moment where the 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 player takes away with them forever because when we've all played games and we all you know we all have different tastes but we've all experienced those moments in games where it like shook you to your core and that is really what we're trying to create but like the only way you can do it is by intense cross collaboration and getting everyone involved as soon as soon as possible and and just looking at your game and deciding what needs what and where um and i just don't think that's achievable if you're um, doing a more traditional development process. I'm just going to compare with Minecraft, right? Which is the complete opposite. It's because it'll just help evaluate my point further. Minecraft is a jukebox. Like, that's literally all the music is in the game. It is a jukebox of music that plays in the background. There are no narrative moments. The moments of, you know, the player building stuff in the world. All the music needs to do is to take you to that place. There are no beats to hit. There, you don't really need the highly collaborative process because it's obvious what to do. It's there, and you don't need to overthink it. There's no music system in Minecraft. We literally just play tracks, and that's totally fine. Um, you know, another good example of that, which just came out, uh, the remaster of Command and Conquer. You know why that game is awesome? Because they just play tracks and don't mess with it because the tracks are so good, and you don't need anything that's like telling you, oh, you're in danger and the music is getting more intense. It's like, no, the game just isn't that complicated, dude. It's like, you're at war. That's it. Let's have some war music. Let's have some like army war music and it's 90s rock and it's amazing and it's totally effective and you don't need to go any further than that. I think, I think that, but the thing is, they put thought into it. Like, I am sure they thought about, oh, what if we had, like, what if, what if we changed the music when, you know, the, the, the player is in this situation, especially when they were doing the remaster, because probably they could. And it's just like, why? Why would you do that? You probably wouldn't. You just want to give the player the feeling of what it's like to be in control of the army. That's all you need. Um, and so that's why it works. So that's like an example on the complete other side of the spectrum. But, in both cases, you can tell that thought was put into it. I got two follow-up questions for you. Go for it. The, the first one would be... I'll, I'll try and be quicker. Would you, because uh, you, were, you were... It was super awesome stuff, by the way. Um, so 
You said that uh, it is very important to create those extraordinary moments, um, moments that shine and um, that it's not just all good, but something that stands out. Would you mm -hmm. say it's better for developers to have a average kind of score, average experience, but have a few outstanding moments and have that rather than like an overall good experience without anything extraordinary? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I think you obviously want all of the music to be good, but it's it's about like how the music makes you feel in a certain moment. Like, you know, should you be, should the music be epic and grand? Or is a good example, actually, because all of the visuals in the game look amazing. But it's like, do you need, do you need the music to tell you that? No, because you have eyes. Your eyes can tell you that the visuals are amazing. So actually what the music should be doing is giving you space to appreciate the visuals. And also, the gameplay should be giving you space to appreciate those visuals. One of my favorite things about, um, I, I, I'm going to pick an example uh, from recent years, is uh, The Witcher, right? The Witcher 3. Now, Witcher 3 is a giant open world. And what it does really well is it gives you space, right? It's not just like packed with content. Breath of the Wild is another game that does this very well. Yeah. Um, it gives you space to appreciate the environment. Now, there are some developers who feel that like we need to put gameplay, <laughs> as in like interaction in every single moment. And that, that, that depends greatly on the type of game. If it's Super Meat Boy, then yeah, it's a hardcore game, like with hardcore abilities or, or like Cuphead. It's a very specific style, style of game. But in a game like Ori or um, The Witch 3 or um, uh, Breath of the Wild, you're also telling a story. And to tell the story, you need to give the player space. And so that space, what a, what a designer might feel is like average gameplay or boring gameplay because the player is just pressing forward. For the player, it's not boring because they have a chance to appreciate other stuff and they're not like, they, they don't feel like they're having to do so much all the time. And I, I already mentioned this with the enemies example in, in Ori 2 with that wheel room. It's like, we don't need all of that extra gameplay to appreciate everything else. So it's, it's, it's about pacing your experience to, to elevate other, to elevate other moments. So when, Perhaps when the, the visuals aren't as exciting, maybe you can push the music and sound effects a little bit more or push the gameplay a little bit more. When the visuals are, you know, magnificent, dial back the music. Now, if there's a visual you really want to accentuate, then yeah, go for it with the visuals and the music. And because you haven't done it in too many other places, it's going to have impact. I, I guess I would define it as like being a good good editor. You've got to understand like the pacing and the flow of your game, like and, and the and the editing process. And that's what a good film or TV editor will do is that you know they, they won't cram everything together. They'll find they'll find places for the movie to breathe. Now the exception to this would be if like let's say you're making, you know, John Wick. Like your action sequences are going to be very intense. But the thing is, even John Wick has these moments of space, right? So it makes all of the action moments have that much more impact because you get a chance to breathe and learn more about the characters, more about learn more about the world. And then it's like, right, okay, time for another epic pencil fight sequence. Um, so <laughs> um That and and I think the same applies with games. Like I don't remember every moment of John Wick, but I all I do remember some of the quiet moments in John Wick. Like whenever he's in the hotel with um, yeah. 
um, with the with the host. You remember those moments because mm. visually it's unique um, and it's a very quiet moment. It's it they, and they always change the sound of the music. Like always, the music completely drops out in that scene. I can't believe we're talking about John Wick uh, with the <laughs> You started it, but honestly, uh, so, I love yes, it. <laughs> I, I did. I did start it. Well, it's a good comparison. I feel like most most people will have seen the movie. So oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but like it's 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 um, th- it actually brings you more into that moment because it's like a, a, a release point. Um, and 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 it's the same in Aurea. So so I would say you it the the worst thing a developer could do is have no tension and release points in their game. It's like just having it be average throughout. You want peaks and valleys. It's okay to have the intensity level be at one, and it's okay to have the intensity level be at ten. But ideally, you want some variety. Unless the game you are making is that very specific kind of hardcore hotline Miami or or Doom. I mean, but even Doom like has some has some shape. I mean, Doom. I feel like. Is like between six and ten on the intensity level, but the yeah, six. But it also has those moments. I mean, there are yes, moments it, it, where you can like exactly. breathe a little bit at least. Yep. You know? Exactly. They they yeah. they thought about it, but like, um, yeah, it has those moments where you can take a breath, and I think I think that's 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 what's important. I feel like the these really huge games maybe forget that's like because you're so worried about putting all of this content mm-hmm. into the world, but does the content actually mean something? And this is what The Witcher 3 did very well. A lot of the content they put in, especially some of the side quests are just nuts. They go on forever and it's great. There's like really involved stories. Um and they actually mean something. You want the stuff you put into the game to be meaningful. Yeah, I understand like the nature of AAA development means you want to pad out the game a little bit, but like make sure that amongst like the the normal side quests or the the normal content is stuff that will actually matter to the player because that is actually what will keep the player going. It's like, ooh, what will I find around the corner that's potentially interesting? It's like, oh yeah, there's a simple fetch quest here, but like Oh, if I go on this fetch quest, maybe I'll find something else that's cool. And the best design games all have that. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and, and you know, talking about John Wick <laughs> because we used it as a <laughs> reference. This, this, those calm before the storm moments are kind of you know yeah. what I think player, you know, people that watch a movie and also players that play games need in order to then yeah. you know focus on the next thing, and get really immersed in that. So my my second <laughs> follow up question um, was. What is your personal favorite moment, if you have one, excluding the games that you worked on yourself? <sighs> I'm gonna have to think about this a sec. You'll have to you'll have to edit this. Um, no, why? See. Why? I mean, it's it's. No, <laughs> it's because no, you'll have to you'll have you'll have to edit the thinking time. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, there's two there's two there's two that spring to mind from recent years, and they're they're kind of similar similar games. Um, they could also be older, by the way, if you have some that's uh, longer ago. You know, I I know my personal favorite, but that's been a while. Um. Yeah, I'm going to pick a few. Um, I'll pick the ones that are closer um, first. So the first um, one is from Inside. Um, I don't. I really don't want to spoil it. I feel like everyone has probably played in. Everyone probably listening to this has probably played Inside at this point. But if you haven't, I'm not going to spoil it. But there's a moment that is basically the last 15 to 20 minutes of the game. Uh, the whole game builds towards that moment, and the whole game is kind of WTF. But like. <laughs> That moment right at the end takes that and dials it up to to 20. Like it's, I remember the first time playing that and I was in my living room and my jaw just hit the floor Um, because also as a developer, I don't know how they did what they did um, because it must have taken them ages to make 
the thing look like it did and look good, um, like animated, animate it well. Um, but also just the way it wraps up the, the, the game. It's, it's not an emotional moment, but it's an, it's a moment that has impact. Um, because you're, you're not expecting it. The whole game is kind of a mystery and then it just dials up the mystery factor even more at the end. Um, the game, uh, most recently that shook me to my core is Hellblade. Send you a sacrifice. Um, the ending of Hellblade is one of the most powerful endings ever. Um, and the music that they drop in the ending is unbelievably good. It is, it is the perfect piece of music for the ending of the game. I cannot imagine anything else there. Um, and, uh, yeah, the last like five to 10 minutes of gameplay combined with the final cutscene, uh, my jaw hit the floor. Um, it's one of those moments I'll, I'll never forget. Um, the other one, um, it's, it's an obvious one. Um, because it's also one of my first gaming experiences, was, <laughs> again, I feel like everyone's played it, but there might not be because there's a new generation coming to Final Fantasy VII now uh, with the remake. So, um, But there's that moment in the original game where the antagonist does something. Oh, you can, uh, you can spoil it. I mean, come on. <laughs> Otherwise, I do it for you so, because that is my yes. moment that I want okay. to. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, the antagonist kills a key, a key uh, protagonist character. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm right, just right, not gonna right. go the the whole way. Um, and it's, it's the thing is, it works because it's completely unexpected, and the game builds up your relationship yes. with that character from the beginning. Um, and uh, they do a good job of not showing the villain too much. So the villain has more impact when he when when Sephiroth's on screen. He he, he has impact when he's there because he's not shown too much. Um, and as a result, that time when he does the thing, it's like, oh my god, I really hate you now. I don't know that much, and I don't know that much about you. It, it, but if you knew, if you knew he was more of a villain before that, that moment has less impact. Yeah. Um, so um, that was a moment that I feel that they thought out really, really well. Absolutely. Um, this is this is my like all time favorite moment in video games <laughs> history. I mean, I've never hated a villain more than than yep. you know Sephiroth in that moment where he did the thing. Yep. Uh, so definitely, whoever has not played the game yet, whether it's an original version or the other remaster, yep. you know, this is really something that uh, you know people need to look into and and, and experience. Yeah. So we yes. talked a lot about the, the especially when you realize that. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Nico. Sorry, I want to interrupt you. I'm so, I, um, especially when you realize that you leveled up the character completely in vain. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's true somehow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, um, Karis, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, the creative side of your work and, and composing. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to touch on um, when we talked about Moon Studios. Um, you uh, said in the beginning that uh, a lot of people are working in a very kind of, you know, decentralized way, remote way, using tools that are pretty much available to everybody. Um, so... Uh, and obviously, most companies these days, uh, since we're still in the middle of like a, like a pandemic <laughs> in most parts of the world, are making their own experiences with that. So, how do you feel? Uh, you know, Moon Studios has kind of led the way in that regard. Um, did did it make any difference to you? Like the the recent events, did it make things more more challenging, or were you so used to working that way that you know pretty much nothing changed and it was business as usual? So, for Moon Studios business as usual absolutely um i think the only thing i'm glad we were able to ship ori when we did because uh the recording the final recording happened for ori 2 in january 
Um, we started in December and then we had one more day in January. Um, if we'd been two months later, we probably wouldn't have been able to record. Uh, so mm. I think we were very, very, very lucky because obviously music is a big part of the experience in Ori and we were able to get in time just before things got crazy. So there are aspects of the game industry uh, which have been affected. Um, like you really, it's very difficult to record an orchestra right now. Um, there is recording happening, but the microphone placements are completely different because the orchestra has to be spaced out. <laughs> um, so micro- so engineers are having to come up with new techniques to record the orchestra because uh, it's a different format um, than they are used to recording in. There's a very traditional format for recording orchestra. So there are a few things that have been affected, but for the most part, regular game development uh, at Moon Studios has not been affected. Um because we've had the online tools for as long as the studio has existed. So so here's the key thing. There, there are a lot of studios who have transitioned to working from home. And I think what's important for some studios to remember is that, especially when considering their employees, is that not everyone is built to work from home. Um, it is a process. Some people need the structure in their daily life. They need to be in an office. They need to be around other people. Uh, They need the social aspect of being uh, at work. And that is totally 100% fine. Um, And so I don't think, I don't think we'll see an era where offices disappear because um, I think, uh, I think uh, people do need still that community aspect of being at work. And there are things that are definitely quicker, like meetings, for example, uh, that, uh, that you do benefit from being in an office. Um, but there are also several advantages to, to working from home. Of course, the main one being you can work whenever you want. The second, there are no geographical restrictions on where you can hire from. Uh, that's a big one because you, there's no, you're, you're expanding the talent pool to infinity. Uh, like your, your, your requirement for being hired is, are you good? And do you have, um, do you have an internet connection? (laughs) Like that, like that, I mean, honestly, that, that's it. Like, uh, I agree. I mean, this is, this is definitely the, I couldn't agree more. This is kind of the the biggest change. And I see it in our environment that uh, a lot of people that, um, were never, you know, uh, able to come over to uh, the office location. All of a sudden now they are part of the discussion because we're like, Hey, there's this, there's this amazing developer. There's this amazing composer or whoever we talk about. Um, and all of a sudden it's like, well, why don't we bring that person on board? because uh yep. it's easy now and everybody's used to yep. it and i think that's a, that's a big difference and i, I don't think that's going to go away it, it will stay the um yeah i mean there's 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 just so many yeah there's just so many benefits to to being able to draw from any from any talent pool um yeah i mean you know i was you know, i was thinking the other day i mean a lot of these people their, their faces i don't i don't actually see um and it's actually you know it's actually a very easy way to you know, uh, the, this is a current issue with Black Lives Matter um, and increasing diversity is important. But actually the way, you know, hiring this way, honestly, I couldn't even tell you um, who, what, what race some people are on our team because we don't think about it because we're just looking at the work. Um, and obviously we hope people are applying of all different, of all different ethnicities. But I think when you have like a real in-person interview, then, you know, some of those prejudices might come to, come to fore. Uh, I only bring this up because it's a current issue and, uh, it, we, we were talking about it the, uh, a few, a few of us the other day and it was just like, yeah, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know anything about this person other than is their work good? And like, do they speak well? And it's just like that. I think that's, I think that's very interesting. I, I would like to see, I would like to see more blind 
auditions uh, in games. I know it happens for composers as well. Um, there is, you know, um, and it happens in orchestras sometimes because there is there is prejudice, um, like in in the classical music world for sure. And it's like, um, so they do blind auditions now. So if you like the sound, well, it's like, okay, great. You choose that person. You didn't see what they looked like because ultimately what matters is the ability. Um, so I think that's a that's that might seem like a very specific thing that might change, but I think you will see more changes like that do you it'll be more about ability rather than like you know what's this person you know how will this person fit in our studio well if they can work from home does it really matter mm. like um and, and and actually it just doesn't matter at all um i i had to bring that up because it is like a it is like a thing that i um and everything's with everything going on in america right now it's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty nuts it's nuts to me especially you know coming from britain and i went to a school where it's like i didn't see any of this stuff um and then in america it's like right in my face yeah um, absolutely and i and to be honest the united states is my second home i spent a lot of time there yeah. in, in recent years and seeing this right now is uh it's very difficult to take yeah. in and uh i don't want to say that we don't have it here in europe uh we have similar yeah. issues um but uh maybe not so much you know in in you know present at the moment like they are in the united states or at least doesn't feel yeah. like that but it's very important yeah. what you said about uh, um, that the racial bias that you sometimes have in in interviews and when you see people um, as opposed to just yep. talking to them is definitely there. I mean, there's there's one yep. example that I want to uh, throw in here. If you look at uh, resumes in the United States versus here in Germany, for example, where we are based, here is very normal that you submit um, pictures uh, with your uh, photos of the applicant with your application. In yep. uh, most other countries that I know, this is not the norm. And uh, yep. I don't, find anyone here in the German industry that would not be somehow influenced by looking at that picture. Um, yep. And that's why a lot of companies in other um, states, and I think the US is one example, they already moved away from that. And if, if we now adding to that, yep. what you were saying about you know, not actually seeing the person, which is yep. kind of um, based on the situation, I guess, normal yep, at the moment, yep. um, then uh, you remove another layer of, of prejudice, yep. like you said. And I think that is uh, something that we could all think about in, in terms of um, you know doing our part in increasing diversity in our industry and not be biased and in the end create better teams with with better talent your your picture is definitely not going to dictate how well you can write a line of code absolutely yeah. <laughs> like or write a note or draw a picture or design a sound i mean it's it's um that, that's that's crazy to me i mean the the only obviously the only industry where you know the only part of work would be um you know would be acting of yeah. course you need to know what the person you know that mm. makes sense but like but there's different roles in acting so that's that's fine but like yeah it's uh it's uh nuts to me to get while we're on the subject of hiring, this is a decent segue it, to, it, with the working from home thing. Um, the one thing that Moon Studios it, excels at is finding the right people to who are able to work from home, because and that's where you have to spend some time talking to people. Because as I said, not everyone is built to work from home. So if you are building a studio where you're not going to be centralized. You need to find out how well people work from home when they have to self-motivate because it's very easy. And I imagine this happened a lot in April. People are like, oh, yeah, I can work from home. I can get up whenever I want. I can just I can eat. I can work in my pajamas. I can eat junk food all day. I don't have to socialize with anyone like I'm sure that was great for a month. And then it was like, oh, what do I do now? I have no structure in my day. 
Um, and uh, and then some people might not be able to find it. What Moon is very good at um, and what any studio doing this needs to get is they need to get kind of inside the head of like the person that they're hiring, like how they work, how do they work best, and then facilitate that as much as they can. And if it turns out that they work best in an office environment, then probably they're not ready yet to work from home. And this might change throughout your life. Like maybe from the age of 25 to 30, you work in an office and then you're like, oh, I'm done with that. I want to work from home now. We'll see my family more and stuff like that. And then, so this changes all the time. And what I would love to see happen, and I think it will as a result of the pandemic, I think you're going to see, and this is why I think offices will remain, I think you're going to see a lot more flexible contracts where instead of the five-day work week, which is the stupidest thing ever, um, you're going to have, hey, maybe come in four days a week or three days a week and just like, but you're still able to work from home. I think, especially in games, developers should be empowering their employees to be able to give them the tools they need to work from home so they can be like, oh, I want to stay at home and see my kid do his concert or something. Then they can, like without yeah. having to worry about taking time off. I think a lot of companies have now seen that actually, oh, it's actually not that hard to transition to working from this home. This actually works. Like, that, that, yeah, right. what it, we've it, seen it as works. well. I mean, people were surprised. Like, yeah. oh, oh my God, this is really working. And uh, yeah. now, aren't people less productive? And can we trust people? And then realize... People, people well, want actually, to work. Actually, like, people want to do this. And we, we've seen yeah. that in a lot of cases, in a lot of different roles, people were actually more productive working from home, yep. especially the ones without kids uh, that were yep. obviously impacted more. But well, um, that's, and that, yeah, a lot that's of people the, wanted to do more. And they, instead of like, you know, having a commute to the office like an hour or two, sometimes in the morning you yeah. know they started working earlier and sometimes stayed later because they were quite frankly bored at some point you know and yeah. really want to do something productive yeah and that's the thing like maybe there's nothing for you to do at the office so you go home at two o'clock like mm -hmm. and then maybe just continue the work at home but uh, a good example of that in reverse is maybe your office has the surround sound studio which you obviously don't have at home because it costs way too much money or you don't have the room or whatever it's like okay well now i need to go listen to my work on an amazing system oh i can just go to work like yeah. and and do it like i think if there's anything that this pandemic has shown is that the working from home model can work by itself but also if you're a giant studio you can actually give your studio uh, give your employees more flexibility with how they work within that studio and i think you'll find you'll have much happier employees because they then they won't feel obligated to yes. come to the studio they will feel empowered to come to the studio i can go on to the studio when i need to or when a meeting is called but maybe a meeting can be a mix of in person and zoom like yeah. you know there's there's so many options now and i think um if they obviously there's a ton of tragedy surrounding the pandemic, but I, I I think and hope that working practices, not just across the games industry, but across like pretty much all industries that are office-based for sure, will find, I think there's going to be a lot of downsizing uh, oh, yeah. in, in terms of office, um, which is which is just, which is going to be good all around, less commuting, good for the environment, saving money, um, and, uh, and happier employees as well. Um, so, um, yeah, that's 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 a little bit about the work from home model. I mean, Moon Moon has been doing this forever, and the the reason it if you're going to work exclusively from home, just make sure you know who you're hiring. I mean, every company should be making know they making sure they know about the person's attitude to work and how they work best. That to me should be the most important thing. Um, I I feel like everyone, you know, the ability thing, like 
when you're applying for a job, you, you're you're probably good enough to do the job. Like I think like a large number of people are probably good to do good enough to do the job, especially like in music at a um, at a at a high, at a high level. Then it's about like how well do you mesh in with the company culture and the team the team's philosophy and how they work and all of that stuff. And that stuff is a little bit more nuanced because not everyone is the same. Um, I mean, I disagree with uh, Thomas and Gennady, the two directors at Moon, all the time, but we disagree because we give. We, we give a damn about the the things that we work on and we want to make sure that it's the best thing and so yeah it would be I think it would be very unusual if we didn't disagree on things actually um, if, if everything was just a happy relationship then it would be like well would we be actually making anything great probably not um, absolutely I mean so, healthy disagreement is very important yeah. for, for anything you're creating um, but, you know, we're all just working at home. And then when we get together, it's actually, you know, really cool because we don't actually see each other that often. So actually it's all, even though there's, there's been any disagreements in the past, like, well, because we don't see each other, it's actually incredibly friendly and, you know, we can um, enjoy enjoy our time together because it's usually usually very brief. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things like uh, the, all the tools are there to work from home. Um, just uh, make sure you're using them all and make sure that you are finding... Uh, finding out as much about the person's work style because uh, I mean I, I struggle with it from time to time. I'm not going to say I'm a brilliant like person at working from home. I mean, there's some days, there's some days I just don't want to work, and then I don't, and I'm just like, okay, I'll just do it. I, I will just do it tomorrow. And usually that time off allows me to attack the thing tomorrow. I think probably the pressure a lot of people feel when they're working from home is like they get lazy or they're watching Netflix for too many hours and then they feel guilty because they didn't mm. work. The important thing, I guess I'm now talking to the people who are working from home as opposed to the people doing the hiring. Don't feel guilty. Like just accept that it's what you're going to do and then do it, enjoy it, finish it. And then you'll probably be ready to go back to work. Like that's, I stopped feeling guilty about playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey for 10 hours uh, a long time ago because uh, I love the Assassin's Creed games and I'm just like, well, I'm not going to get any work done today. So like, I'm just going to play this until I'm tired and then I'll probably be satisfied for like until the next time, until the next time I play and then I'll, then I'll just go back to work. But like, if you, ha if you're working from home and there's that thing you want to do that isn't going to go away until you do it, just stop fighting it. Like just, you know, if, even if it's like 2 PM in the day, um, just stop fighting it and go, go do it. Um, if there is a, if there is a deadline, like obviously you should try to meet the deadline. But if there's one thing I found is that deadlines, if you talk to your employer, you can, you can, you, there's usually some leeway. Obviously there's usually a hard deadline, but sometimes things can be moved because we're all working from home and online deadlines aren't as fixed as they used to be. I'm, I'm not saying that everyone should avoid all their deadlines, of course, but I'm just saying if you, you know, if you're struggling with the working from home aspect because it's new to you, talk to your boss because I'm pretty sure they will be understanding. Um, we're in a pandemic. If your boss isn't understanding, then there's probably something wrong with them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so actually, um, um, as as long as my connection works properly, I I, I got to give it a go. Um, and yep. and and this is this is maybe a weird transition. I should have asked the question earlier, but. Um, um, as I mentioned, I've, I've listened to, to all the soundtracks, the most recent ones, the, the Ori, uh, Ori soundtracks, um, the Darksiders, uh, soundtrack. I love the whole series. Um, 
And I mean, this is like, as I, I actually also watched a couple of Let's Plays, and obviously I was not the only one who almost started crying without even playing it myself. Um, this, the, the scores that you created definitely uh, triggered something, which, which for me is always uh, a, a very positive thing, even, even though it might feel sad in the moment. But uh, what I was, I was thinking about what what some of the tunes also reminded me of, and um, and so I, what I w wanted to ask is, what's what would you consider your main source of inspiration? Not necessarily in terms of okay, this is something that I want to do, but something that maybe triggers your creative processes. You know, um, and the bonus question is um, that um, is there something that you w would consider something like um, like a signature of yours? Not necessarily a style, because obviously listening to these different soundtracks, they're all uh, they're all very different. Um, but like I said, something like a signature, something like you that that you like to include, even though in various forms. So the the question of inspiration, um, you know, th this comes up a lot because, especially because I get asked this question a lot by composers. You know, what inspires you, or especially what composers inspire you? And you know, my my, my first answer to that is I don't really spend much time listening to other soundtracks. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that I think other soundtracks are bad. On the contrary, I think they're all really good. But if I'm like in the middle of a project, I don't want to get influenced by another soundtrack because that soundtrack has also been influenced by whatever the research. There's, you can mm. always trace it back. Um, I would rather go deep into YouTube and Spotify black holes and do my research there and find stuff that I've never heard before. And maybe a lot of it I don't like, but perhaps you're going to learn what I find that I learn more from listening to stuff that I'm unfamiliar with, even if I don't like it. There might be an aspect of that piece of music that I like. That's the one aspect. That's the sonic aspect of inspiration. Uh, but I think you're getting something a little bit deeper. Um, and in terms of like finding whatever it is I need to create a moment like the opening of Ori and the Blind Forest or the ending of Will and the Wisps, both emotional moments, um, usually that's dependent on um, personal history or personal experiences. Uh, one thing I like to do, which we can't do at the moment, is travel. Um, but I've been very lucky to live in multiple countries. Um, I've traveled to all, like so many different parts of the world. And I'm 100% sure that those experiences inform my choices. Um, also life experiences and not just my own, uh, but other people's. I love listening to other people's stories, both sad, happy, whatever they are. Um, but also my own, you know, my own personal experiences. If you, if I, I can point to two, you know, very personal experiences that I'm not ashamed to say that I drew upon, uh, for, for Ori one and two. Um, you know, if I, if I am trying to make a certain emotion in my music, I want the music to remind me of something that made me feel that emotion uh, uh, in a part of my life. The point that I'm getting at is that 
I think all artists, when they're looking for inspiration, the more life experience you have, the better. There's a lot of people that stay stuck in school or stay living at home or, um, or are just not adventurous enough. Um, and I'm not saying like, go and do a bunch of crazy extreme stuff. I'm just saying, do something that makes you uncomfortable. Like do something that's mm. not normal. Like moving to Japan at the age of 22 for me. That's huge. You know, that's like, especially after just having got a music degree, it's like, okay, I'm off to teach English. Like WTF, what's going on? Like, <laughs> um, that's the, a lot of people I asked why I was doing that. Um, and honestly, part of it was like, I didn't really, I wasn't really truly committed to music at that point. I needed to find out. Um, but it also gave me the chance to travel, to see more parts of the world, get a new perspective, experience what it's like being a minority, because I was the only white guy in a city of 500,000. Um, so, so that was an interesting experience. Quite fun, actually. But like, um, like all of those different things add up to like different life experiences and it gives you more perspective. And when you have greater perspectives to draw upon, I think generally speaking, you create art and work that is more informed. Um, I think when you're part of a monoculture, you'll have a very accurate representation of that culture, um, but it's it can be harder to expand upon that. It's one of the reasons why Witcher 3 is so great because it's so mm. deeply tied into Slavic culture and the game is made by a Polish company. So it's like, yeah. it, it represents that lifestyle like really well. I, if, if I'd done the music for Witcher 3, even if I'd researched it like crazy, I just don't think it would have had quite the same, the same feel. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I think like just having that depth of experience, that's kind of what I'm, that's kind of what I'm drawing upon. Like, um, yeah, it's funny. I, I was going to travel a lot like after Ori 2 shipped this year and uh, you know I'm not able to now so it's a little <laughs> bit frustrating but that that is what I would have would have done um so you know but now it's just like you know finding finding stuff you know finding different stuff to do that is that is a new challenge if you're not if you're not pushing yourself into new directions you're never going to develop as an artist you know even if it's just reading a new book or a new author or watching a tv show that you wouldn't have considered five years ago that's still challenging yourself because you're going against your normal routine um i mean here's the other thing though we're in a pandemic and everyone's challenged and that will <laughs> yeah. be that will be something that people draw upon in five years from now when actually they did get through it but also you know sadly probably several people have probably lost someone during this pandemic and i think we will see a lot of great art be inspired from this time in the pandemic when people picked up new skills and people tried new things and in two to three years time we're going to see some pretty crazy stuff because people were at home for a long time and and you know dealing with their own struggles because i think when we have a lot of time at home and a lot of time to ourselves and to get inside our heads your your head can go to a crazy place if you're spending a lot of time thinking so i think i think that's something that people will have um and then you know the other result i think eventually we'll get through this pandemic and uh then I think everyone's going to be like, oh my goodness, finally I can get outside. And we're going to, and, and there's actually going to be a benefit to that because people are going to travel like crazy and they're going to appreciate what they have even more than they ever did before. Um, I don't want to say the pandemic is a good thing. I just want to say that there is a uh, silver lining to every cloud. Um, like whatever you're feeling now, if you've been in lockdown for three months, um, 
there are some very positive things I think that will come out of this. Uh, so, um, yeah. So with the, that's, I guess a little bit about like where my inspiration comes from. Um, you know, I, I could go very deep into the psychological and ph uh, philosophical aspects of it, but you've kind of got a hint of like, the, mm. the, it does go deep. Like I, it's not just like I read a book or I watch a film. Yeah. It's, it's about developing your taste. I, yeah. I totally agree, especially in terms of what you said um, about personal experience, and even 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 though it might uh, um, impact one's work on a subconscious level, but I do think that um, that you can feel if a moment is genuine. You you, you get the yeah. idea what I mean? You know, this yeah. is like sometimes and even if it's just a single note that that changes the whole impact uh of a score of a song even even yeah. though a story maybe and uh um i think that is really 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 impressive and uh yeah you asked me um yeah you asked me the the, the, the bonus question the, the signature, the signature. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's a signature. I do think like I have a certain production style. Just like there's certain uh, qualities in like the production of my music that, um, like my orchestral music doesn't really sound like John Williams, or it doesn't sound like you know it doesn't sound like other orchestral music in general. It has its own because I don't believe the orchestra has to sound a certain way. I just mm -hmm. make whatever I think. I think sounds cool. Um, there is an expectation, especially amongst classical musicians, that oh, the orchestra has to be recorded a certain way, produced a certain way. Um, so I think I think that's a, a part of it. Honestly, I think the signature of my music is, for whatever reason, um, and it's it's happened across multiple scores. It for whatever reason, and maybe because it's so attached to the games, it opens up whatever pathways in the brain there are to allow you to feel something i don't know what that is and i don't i couldn't even begin to tell you why that is but you're asking me if there's a signature i think i think music that um music that opens up those pathways that's because i don't i don't submit music if those part if my own music doesn't make me feel those pathways um, or make me feel something if there's no avenue opening i don't really want to put it in the game unless it's a piece of music that requires like nothing um but that's actually quite rare um so i think um i think that's what it i think that's really the only signature but i think that's a signature that is common amongst composers who are working a lot anyways like the the music that they write stylistically it's their own that's one aspect of a signature but the common thing between all of them is it allows the emotional pathways in the brain to open up cool so i i feel like we could go on for hours of <laughs> yes, super yes, exciting yes. talk to you but it, you know i i guess our listeners already have a lot of uh, stuff to take in and a lot of learnings i actually took from this uh, from this episode so um I definitely want to thank you so much, Gareth, for sharing uh, all the insights um, that you did today. And uh, definitely, since you talked about traveling, uh, I think once traveling is possible again, we got to get together in person and uh, you know yes. continue this conversation <laughs> and, yes. and hopefully share more of the stories. Uh, so it's it's super exciting uh, to to hear all that, and um, you know I, I really believe there's a lot of value in that. So again, thank you very much uh, from our side um, for you know taking the time to do this with us, and uh, I, I can't wait to. 
you know, have the uh, opportunity to meet you in person then. Um, Likewise. Thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that was a real pleasure. Uh, um, I'm really happy we could make this happen. And uh, yeah. again, awesome job on on what you guys did. Um, that just beautiful. beautiful. I think beautiful is the most fitting word for uh for for yeah especially for Ori. um yeah yeah thank you yeah well we worked we worked pretty hard on it um so <laughs> thank you for listening to a devcom podcast produced by sven fussing executive producer stefan reichardt music by we love supported by buyer dynamic High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.